0: A special bonus episode for you this week.
1: In our last episode about bathroom art, we had a wonderful interview with Professor Sarah Kleinman from Virginia Commonwealth University. She's an art historian and a PhD candidate there.
0: Unfortunately, due to time constraints, we weren't able to include her full interview, so we are leaving the whole thing here for you to listen to right now. And if you haven't heard our episode about bathroom art, go back and listen. It's so good.
1: So here she is in much greater detail, the very charming Professor Sarah Kleinman and the history of bathrooms and art. Woo! Woo!
0: Hey! Hey.
1: (laughs) We're talking to an art historian uh, named Sarah Kleinman, who's a PhD candidate, and uh, we're gonna ask her a couple questions about the history of art and bathrooms and uh, get a little bit of perspective. And context about how that's uh, been viewed culturally in the past. Um, but first, uh, we were kind of interested in uh, how you got into art history and what made you pursue a career in it.
2: Absolutely. Well, it's wonderful to be here. Um, thank you so much. That is it's an excellent question. I, I've always been creative, I've always had a knack for drawing, for painting, but. It's really, it's rooted in um, my childhood because my grandparents on my father's side, they had an art collection and most of it was um, what they managed to save from Nazi Germany. Growing up with these objects from my grandma's homeland, I was just so fascinated and so curious about the people behind these objects and why they were made and how they were made from that, it it was a gateway to understanding other people. And I didn't necessarily think art history was a career. I didn't even think about that until after I had earned my bachelor's degrees. But yeah, so it's just this, it's a very personal connection that I have with art. And I studied political science, studio art, and art history at the University of Colorado at Boulder. People think that that's a very odd combination but for me with my background I see it as so fundamentally connected so it wasn't until about three or four years after I earned my bachelor's that I started to think about ways I could get back to the museum because I wanted to work in a museum and I quickly found out that in order to do what I wanted to do in a museum which is organize art exhibitions is to have a PhD and be a curator yeah and so I started putting feelers out there, and that's when I came across Virginia Commonwealth University in the School of the Arts. And I had such a strong connection with Peggy Lindauer, who is the chair of the department there. And the rest is it's sort of history that it's, it is a viable field, and it's a vital part of our time.
1: You're, you're currently an art history PhD candidate. What are you... Researching for your dissertation, that's probably a bit of a loaded question, because you're like, "I'm writing a dissertation on it."
2: <laughs> <laughs> so my dissertation um, is looking at a curator, um, and his name is Keniston McShine. People assume that he was an artist, making work, but he's not he He is the person who the figure of the curator, who historically has organized art exhibitions for display in museums, and that's how knowledge comes into being. And so, Keniston McShine, um, he was at the Museum of Modern Art in New York from 1958 up until he retired in 2008. In literature, he is associated with organizing uh, several important art exhibitions. The first one was at the Jewish Museum. He's, he organized the first museum exhibition of minimal art before minimalism was even named. And McShine really put the museum on the map with that to compete with MoMA and the Whitney Museum. Um, The second exhibition he's known for organizing is called Information. It was in 1970 and it was coming out of the protests that were happening in, in the late 60s. Surrounding artist rights and civil rights and women's rights. He managed to organize this international exhibition of conceptual art. Um, And then later on, he did a very memorable exhibition called Museum is Muse, and it looks at the artist's relationship to the museum. Um, so he's he's known as a pioneering curator of the 60s and 70s, all the way through the, the 2000s. He's also, um, he grew up in Trinidad and Tobago, so he is considered within the United States a person of color and an immigrant. So my dissertation is the first protracted scholarly investigation on his work as a curator. So this study has been sort of unearthing who he was Um In the end, I hope to write a multi-volume work, this is long after my dissertation, about his life, um, about his career, and what he did within the context of how we understand curators to work today.
1: Sounds like there's a lot to explore there.
2: Yeah, and I love that you're so passionate
0: about it. So you've mentioned you've done some art history-related traveling through the
2: Fulbright Mm -hmm. program. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Of course. I was a Fulbright Fellow um, in Trinidad and Tobago from August 2018 to June 2019. Canisumic Shine was born, raised, and went to school in Trinidad and Tobago. It's in the Southern Caribbean. It's considered part of the the West Indies, and it's just off the coast of Venezuela. I was based at the University of the West Indies in St. Augustine. Um, and so down there, I was I was conducting all of the traditional, conventional forms of research: library, archival research, doing interviews, having conversations, and discovering primary sources that are not available in the United States. They are not digitized, so it was gold right at my fingertips to really understand where Mixshine grew up and the socio political context and the history. To be there for a year and to understand beyond the textbook, what, what is this place? And why isn't it talked about and why don't we understand it? It was personally and, and professionally the most profound experience I have ever had. I learned what an intellectual and creative powerhouse Trinidad and Tobago is. It's, it's fascinating.
0: So do you have art in your bathroom? If so,
2: what is it? And why that particular art? So, I live in an apartment and it has wallpaper and striped wallpaper. And I wanted something that sort of stood out, that wouldn't just blend in. So, I have these two square, they're almost sculptural ceramic. They look like ceramic flowers that are high relief on the wall. Um, And I chose them um, for three reasons they're practical for cleaning. They're lightweight. Um, They have this nice, a nice lustrous white sheen. They look clean. They're non-porous, which the conservator in me is saying, like, you need to be careful of humidity. Um, (laughs) Number two, the design, up against that striped wallpaper and these white flowers, it's just a very pleasant addition. Um, It just added my own touch because as an artist, I started by painting roses and flowers. And then third, this is more complex. There's this phenomena called synesthesia. And so, although this is not why I chose the flowers, but it's a sensation that's produced by looking at one thing. Like when you hear a certain sound and you see a certain color, maybe... When you look at a flower, you smell a flower and not something else
1: <laughs> it's i I like that thought it's a <laughs> kind of like a olfactory optical illusion yeah, like there you people go. like walk in and they're like oh it's it's a flowery room, and that's what I'm experiencing mm-hmm. this episode, of course, we're talking about bathroom art and we're we kind of brought you on to get some general context.
2: so I was looking specifically for examples of bathing, um because bathing seems to be different than going to the bathroom, than urinating or defecating, although there are many there are examples of that in conceptual art and and later. And so my the history of this, as I was looking at it, um, it goes back to a hammam which is a public bath and it was a, it was a vital social institution in Middle Eastern countries and the Roman empire. Here we're talking Europe, North America, the East Mediterranean. And it was before the advent of modern plumbing. And so this, the Hammam was central in promoting the idea of hygiene and public health. And then it also served as a meeting space where you could relax and you could socialize. Um, then this goes through, there are literary discussions um, in mythology and literature of Greece and Rome. We, go, we can go back to Homer and Ovid um, and Ovid's metamorphosis. Um, in the process of writing this, Ovid's creating one of the most horrifically brutal stories in the literary canon, which is later taken up by Renaissance painters, um, And so another really important thing to keep in mind that because our focus stems from painting, which itself is a very specific cultural tradition, um, stemming from the Western arts, we potentially overlook manifestations of bathing, uh, rituals and ceremonies. So just because they're not painted doesn't mean that they didn't exist it's one thing. And then we also need to question our assumptions um because these scenes come from artists being able to get in to these the social spaces where bathing was taking place. And that might not always be the case. So we have to keep that in mind as well about bathing in the arts, but there is a history stemming all the way back from ancient Greece and Rome. Also um in Japan, the um the Japanese Netsuke figures. This little figure, um, so taking a step back, on traditional Japanese garments, these robes called kimonos or kutsode, they had no pockets. However, men who wore them needed a place to store their personal belongings, so they had little pouches and boxes, and the Netsuke were the intricately carved button-sized hooks that you could tie the fabric around. And so these today, collectors will pay a lot of money for them. But I have an example of one that it's a really peaceful depiction of a bathing girl. Um, And it's miniature. It's the size of a tiny little button. So there's this depiction too. Um, And then continuing on forward, I mean, there are Orientalist painters, so painters that were looking at present-day Turkey, Greece, and the Middle East, North Africa. And they were really intrigued by the secret world of the women who worked at the Hammam, which was really inaccessible to Western male eyes. And then here we have a painting. Good. Get those (laughs) Western male eyes out of there. (laughs) We'll get into this later, too. Um, But, I mean, it's depicting um, a voluptuous female body in various stages of undress, sometimes accompanied by servants or entertainers. I mean, and this is, if we take a step back and look, this is the the male painter coming into a social space. He, I mean, there's a lot of social dynamics happening here. But continuing this forward, Titian is, is continuing this theme of painting um, Roman and Greek literature and mythology. And we have um, Diana and Actaeon dating to 1556 to 1559. It's at the moment of Actaeon's hapless discovery, looking at Diana as she's bathing with her the nymphs around her. A small dog is yapping and Diana's furiously averting her gaze. And then meanwhile, Actaeon... He stands petrified. And so he clearly understands that he's broaching some sort of space. Then another example, 1638, George de la Tour, woman catching a flea. He's giving a notably intimate view of his subject. And it's a young woman shown sitting in a bare room by candlelight. Her bosom is half out of her um, cotton blouse, and she's trying to flick a kill a flea on her stomach. And so she has a look of utter concentration on her face. It's really, it's a deeply private moment. Um, even that viewing it feels like trespassing. Then moving on forward, I mean, we have Rembrandt, who is also, that he's in 1654. He's depicting Bathsheba resigning herself to the moral dilemma presented to her when, um, King David, Spies on her as she's bathing. It's, it's this instance of voyeurism that's coming up again and the ethical and moral dilemma by this scene. Moving on forward, this continues. I mean, painters like François Boucher, um, Eugene Delacroix, they're casting off the biblical associations of the bathing scene and beginning to use it as a means of presenting the nude in a more naturalistic way. Later in the 19th century, the advent of water um, comes hand in hand with modernism. And so the bather in painting, which was once depicted en plein air, or in, in nature, um, dipping in ponds or streams, this figure is now retreating indoors and is taking on a whole new character with it, looking at Degas, a woman in a tub, Davao was able to paint models alone, and they were articulating how bathing, which was once a communal activity seen in ancient times, it's now almost exclusively private. And tapping into this idea of voyeurism, the fact that he was present to observe his models as they bathed provides a layer of complexity to his studied realism. If we look at social history, this aloneness suggests in a way that women are starting to possess the spaces that they're in. Historically, they had to congregate in groups. Women of a certain social status. That was the norm. You had to be with your group of people. But now women seem to have become the central force in determining how the painter sees them. So this both showcases a new way of seeing and also a different form of physical beauty. But at the same time, the woman is still in a way objectified, subject to what we call in art history, the male gaze, which is, it's rendering a woman into an object that's just subject to scrutiny. So, but then moving on forward through the 1920s, the bather had become one of the most common motifs in modern art. And, while a lot of these paintings are partially concerned with the making of the figure itself, um, we start to realize, and especially as feminist critiques are emerging, the subjects of these paintings are overwhelmingly female. And this taps back into the, the male gaze. And so from this perspective, the history of bathing and the visual arts is social history as much as art history. Tracing how long it took for women to possess private space. Mm. Then, of course, we have the infamous Fountain by Marcel Duchamp in 1917. There's some controversy surrounding this, but many art historians frame this as the cornerstone, the turning point for um, the neo avant garde and postmodern art practice also conceptual art, hugely important for conceptual art, and so for this, he takes an everyday factory-fabricated urinal, and he submits it for exhibition in the 1917 exhibition um, of the Society of Independent Artists in New York, and... Despite the society saying anybody can exhibit, as long as you pay the $6 entry fee, this piece was rejected. And so it raised questions of where do we draw the line between art and non-art? So on the urinal, it's white porcelain. From today, it looks like very, it's a a retro sort of (laughs) image. Um, it was photographed by Alfred Stieglitz, and it's created this aura around it, or this 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 myth around it. But on the the side of the urinal, Duchamp famously inscribed the words "Armut" nineteen seventeen, and of course with the name Fountain, it's it's punning on uh, A, it conjures in the mind the act of. What happens when a man uses the urinal, um, and also sort of toys with the idea of a drinking fountain as well. So it's moving away from this classical subject and the, the, the tradition of the nude, and more towards objects and everyday things being put into exhibition space to challenge the very idea of art. And so here we have this concept of the aesthetic of supplement, which is basically saying that the idea is driving the work we have an object that is baffling and esoteric and it's pressing against the institutions that define what art is um so from this we have class Oldenburg's soft sculptures he did a massive toilet which as i recall it was on display at his retrospective at the museum of modern art a few years ago um in other ways, artists taking this in different directions. Piero Manzoni's um, Artist's Shit of 1961, where um, Manzoni uh, canned very exact amounts of his own excrement and sold them for their weight in gold. Um, there's a fascinating documentary on YouTube. It's by the BBC, and it's called Who's Afraid of Conceptual Art. And it's it's a two hour documentary, but it's just fantastic because the the host goes into a gallery and and looks at the artist's shit and in, in his British accent, and it's very poignant. But it's so true about we are paying to go into a museum space to literally look at a can of shit from an artist. Yeah, I highly recommend that. Um But through the the um the twentieth century. We, as, as a part of postmodernism and sort of a, a fracturing of what we understand of, as identity and adding more nuance and complexity to how we describe artists and, and makers and viewers and audiences, there's sort of an attitude of anything goes as long as you're in conversation with the narratives of artistic precedent. But moving on forward... <laughs> The fame, which everybody who has an Instagram account probably knows this by now Maurizio Catalan's America, which was 2016. It is a functioning toilet made of 18 karat solid gold. It weighs 227 pounds. And this was exhibited at the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum in New York. And so this is getting into institutional critique. It is. As I said, a functioning toilet made of solid gold with the title of America. So here we've gone from these bathing scenes and the, the the male gaze to now everybody can relieve themselves in the toilet called America. And so the Guggenheim Museum in 2016, they linked this to the presidency of Donald Trump. or. the career of Donald Trump, Um, they said that, quote, the aesthetics of this throne recall nothing so much as the gilded excess of Trump's real estate ventures and private residences. Catalan declined to give an interpretation of the work, which he had actually conceived before Trump's presidential candidacy, and he said that the connection to Trump is another layer, but it shouldn't be the only one. And so this points to what Duchamp would call a title as acting as an invisible layer of a work of art, which is really getting at the crux of conceptualism, and things that are happening in the mind that are not present in the work itself. So I've never used this, but um, when it was functioning, there were over 110,000 people who who waited in line all in all to use it and then in 2019 it was stolen when it was on loan at a british collection so controversy <laughs> wow so
1: yeah Art world controversies. They're they are <laughs> pretty bizarre and great a lot of the time. <laughs> so I didn't know it had been stolen. That's really interesting.
0: Yeah, I didn't either.
1: I, I wonder if, if somebody stole it for their collection or if they stole it for the gold. I think chances are probably 50-50. I mean,
2: or just to be called the person who stole the gold toilet named America.
1: Yeah, like, so I think that gives us a really nice, like, overarching perspective, you know, and it seems like it's definitely a th- theme um, and a significant enough part of our culture that it's consistently been captured in art in a variety of ways. Do you think that, um, are are there cultural meanings attached to these images of bathing in bathrooms? And do you think like, how, how would you describe how that's changed over time?
2: The main thing I emphasize as an art historian, both, when I'm writing and when I'm teaching, that all art is culturally constructed. It all of these depictions are; it's some sort of a constructed scene that we invent and we make meaning out of. And then, reading these scenes also depends on where the work is exhibited and is placed. And so, absolutely, um, everything we see. and and hear, whether it be music or um, what John Cage called aleatory music, which is just the music of of silence, Um, everything can be bracketed in a certain cultural context. And so all of the images and artworks that are associated with bathing speak to that. Catalans build a toilet, might not have necessarily had the meaning of Trump's America back when he conceived of it, time has added on these additional layers of meaning and significance. So um, us looking back in time to the ancient Athens vase painters that we bring our own cultural understanding and assumptions Uh, to bear on our interpretations of of those scenes. So absolutely.
0: So there you have it. And thank you so much to Professor Sarah Kleinman for joining us on Art Is Everything and for sharing your wonderful insights with us.
1: As always, you can visit our website artiseverythingpodcast.com to learn more about us and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We'd love to hear your story and suggestions and general feedback And please rate us on iTunes so you can get a shout out here and let your friends know about us. It's with feedback from you that we can continue to grow and get better. Thank you so much for listening.
0: And join us next time on Art is Everything for a conversation about art and medicine. Our third full episode is scheduled to drop on August 13th, 2020. See See you you then. then. Bye. Bye. Bye.
1: Bye. Bye.